0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and today we're going to be talking about Retailo, which is an online marketplace operating in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. It is exclusively for small and medium enterprises. And to talk about Retailo and what it's doing, they've had an amazing uh, uh, funding round just a few months ago in May, um, and they're growing rapidly. So we have with us Wahaj Ahmed, who is the co-founder of Retailo, and he is a part of both the Kareem and the McKinsey Mafia, so to speak. So now he's doing amazing things on his own. So Wahaj, thank you so much for taking out the time and welcome to Pakistanami. Amazing. Thank you so
1: much for having me, there. and great to be speaking to
0: you. Oh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And before I jump in, just letting all our listeners and viewers know that if some audio goes up or down both Vahaj uh, in Karachi <laughs> and myself in DC are in the middle of some rain so if there is some internet problems we apologize in advance uh, with that caveat Vahaj first tell the listeners who may not be familiar with RetailO everyone knows like B2C consumer marketplaces but yours is obviously dedicated for SMEs uh, so just help us understand what RetailO is all about like what what do people do on it like how does it work?
1: No, amazing. So, Retelo is basically an online B2B e commerce app, right? So, our focus is on allowing small, uh, not small, this SMEs, as a medium SMEs as well, to buy inventory of our platform, essentially. So, the core uh, problem that we're solving, the core customers that we are going after are the small local mom and pop stores, both in Saudi and Pakistan. So, there are such, uh, roughly, uh, we estimate across Saudi and Pakistan, such 3 million stores, which uh, essentially uh, need uh, a service like this. And when we extend this to different categories besides the local mom and pop, which is primarily a grocery uh, store, or uh, if you extend it to different types of SMEs as well, this number goes up to 10 million. So they are essentially our core customers. And what we do for them is essentially we give them a mobile app through which they can o- of order inventory. Uh, and uh, uh, anything they order on our application by midnight is delivered to them the next day. And we operate the entire sort of infrastructure around this uh, and to make this happen.
0: So this is what its core retailer is essentially. Retail Sorry, I was on mute. That's fantastic. So from a, uh, a, a sort of a journey or a user flow point of view, right, let's say I'm thinking about the neighborhood I grew up in, in Karachi, there was a corner shop which had everything from glucose biscuits to masalas to dawn bread, et cetera. Um, Usually I remember, we would be playing cricket. So there would be one dawn bread truck that would come with dawn supplies and another with Pepsi, another one with et cetera. So basically what you're doing is making life easy for this corner shop owner to um, order everything from you. They order it tonight and they get it the next day. Did I put that correctly?
1: Exactly, Uzair. so like the local store, the Kiriana, which is selling sugar, milk, oil, biscuits, everything to us, uh, that store essentially is restocking itself daily. So, today there are two primary procurement channels for this corner store one is the wholesale market, and the other are distributors. So, uh, these stores are buying predominantly today from the wholesale market and the wholesale market are essentially these large clusters of markets i'm sure you know being a pakistani uh, markets like jodia and Empress market where and in saudi it's the same story again so uh these large markets these retailers visit two to three times a week they go on their own vehicles or essentially bring back stock for their stores on rented vehicles and this essentially consumes two to three hours of their time and secondary source of procurement for them are brand representatives or distributors that we call them essentially that turn up into their store take an order from them and deliver them the goods the next day so we are an alternative to these two traditional forms of distribution channels and uh, we essentially give them this same sort of service or uh, digitally so allowing them to restock uh, using an app instead of either going into the market or having this offline conversation with a distributor representative and essentially our value proposition is that we offer them Next day delivery with this flexibility and convenience of online ordering while ensuring next day delivery. So, that is uh, the core value proposition behind it.
0: That's fantastic. And it makes life easy for a lot of people. And there's a lot more um, that I want to jump into about what happens um, as you grow, in terms of there's a whole suite of services which I'm sure you're already planning on offering or uh, thinking about offering to these uh, small business owners, everything from credit to marketing, et cetera. But before I do that, there's this view, in, particularly in Pakistan, that, you know, the corner shop owner, the small business owner or the medium business owner is not digitally savvy. They don't want to do these things. They're used to, you know, calling up their contact in Jodia Bazaar and saying, give me this supply today because I know this person for 20 years. Um, is that really the case? Like from your experience, what's uptake been like in terms of, you know, going into this market? So traction has been fantastic, right? Today, in one year, we've onboarded close to
1: first time users, at least more than 50,000 customers. And we still hold on to more than 35,000 of those customers today. right? And the primary reason why that happens is because uh, restocking is not binary, right? Each of these stores is buying from multiple sources of supply. So you would have a a wholesaler in Georgia, you would have 20 bookers coming to you. So you are buying from 50 suppliers. So into the market is actually pretty easy because they consider as another supplier and which is uh, digitally enabled. And once they sort of get into this habit is then that where the behavior kicks in. So when we see that an initial customer is ordering, let's say 1% of their total monthly buying from us, our super users essentially start buying more than 40 to 50% of this from us and, uh, and uh, that transition takes place slowly across 6 to 8 months so that is what we observed and um, we've had all sorts of funny uh, behaviors at the start of that so initially when we go to some customers in pakistan they say that uh, you are trying to uh, there is some sort of fraud happening and you are uh, unreal but uh, hence we so had to even change our pitch initially right we instead of us saying we are a mobile app we go in and say that we are a supplier initially And then when the first supply happens, then is we introduce the mobile app to them, to explain to them that you can actually order online. So there has been a lot of uh, iteration around how to onboard customers. But now, uh, thankfully, customer traction has uh, reached a point where we are acquiring a significant chunk of our users digitally as well, because the buzz in the market now exists that this is a stable, reliable supplier to which they can order.
0: And so from a back-end logistics point of view, as you grow, like Um, Do you like own, operate your own warehouses and in terms of, you know, owning your own vans and fully being vertically integrated, like how does that work?
1: So, uh, Uzer, our goal is on being the most operationally excellent player out there, right? And hence, as a result, we manage operations. We manage the last mile fulfillment as well. And eventually, of course, uh, we don't want to be the player that has like 200 warehouses, right? Uh, We're transitioning towards a model similar to Amazon FBA, essentially. And uh the idea is that we are operating our warehouses on a 2B model. Uh, and uh, essentially us man- managing them while ensuring the legwork is done by players who specialize in this space. We are today partnering with players like mush essentially, who are operating our warehousing infrastructure uh, while we're doing the core management ourselves. We're also in talks with players like Hala and who who do the same for us, right? And the idea is that. We know our technology the best, right? Our reason to be is to build the tech and the digital solution around this while ensuring the different pieces of the supply chain come together for that solution. So, today, yes, we have operated uh, some of our warehouses ourselves, some of our fleet as well as ourselves, just to learn and experiment. But the direction is towards remaining focused towards being this player that does technology development at scale and continues to grow fast.
0: I think that's a super awesome approach because we've seen so many startups, not just in Pakistan and the region, but around the world that sort of shift away from their core expertise or core competency too early on and try to do something uh, totally different. Um, and that lands them in trouble because there are things that, you know, you may know one thing, but that does not mean that it translates well into another sector, right? Um, so I, I really, uh, it's amazing that you already have that focus saying, we're good at technology, we're going to be excellent and thrive at technology. And if there are other things that we need to figure out to do, we'll do it. But, you know, there's somebody who does it better than let them handle it. Right. Which is, which is an amazing approach. So this brings me to to a question around why did you start retail? I was watching one of your other interviews and it was super interesting that, you know, You went to Lums, St. Pat's. I went to St. Paul's, by the way. So there's some rivalry between us (laughs) in that sense, (laughs) but a friendly rivalry, right? Stuck to the cricket field only. Um, So, but then you went to Lums, you worked at Rocket, uh, joined Kareem. You were the youngest manager there at 25, then left for McKinsey. Um, And, you know, when you're at McKinsey, I think most people would say that, you know, and especially in our culture, it would be like, McKinsey अपनी, अपनी, you know why do you want to start your own thing? So how did how did this come about? like what was it in you and the rest of your co-founders that said, you know what, let's do our own thing. And more specifically, let's do our own thing in this SME marketplace where you know not a lot of people want to get into the nitty-gritty of dealing with mom and pop shops in Pakistan.
1: So uh, there is a two-part answer, uh, and uh, firstly is this personal element to it, and then secondly is cumulatively within the founders. So on the personal side, first, I think uh, uh, personally I have always loved uh, experimenting and doing new things, right? So uh, I uh, this is very funny uh, joke which uh, used to go around when we were graduating lungs that uh, we most employers in the country hate us because we switched jobs too quickly and uh, I, I thought that I would be the one to change that around and uh, seven years later this is my ninth job so <laughs> it's something that unfortunately did not pan out too well so I think uh, sort of my personal ethos is like I learned, like to do new things and learn new things so well, that is uh, one reason why sort of the many switch arounds that you see uh, secondly in terms of uh, why Retailo and why this space, I think uh, when we joined Kareem, the three of us uh, and we were joined the start of very nascent uh, in Pakistan, we were doing like 200 trips a day and when we were leaving, uh, we were doing around uh, 300,000 trips a day and we had scaled it across to 17 cities and kind of had that journey together so it was very transformational for all of us and it was less the numbers and more what the captains used to tell us that really moved us, right? The captains uh, that drove those cars essentially told us that uh, their their lives had completely changed. They were uh, doing jobs worth fifteen to twenty thousand rupees a month and had doubled their incomes or tripled their incomes because of COVID. And that sort of became almost like an addiction, right? So we understood that whatever you wanted to do was to have this sort of societal impact, at least. Uh, to ensure that uh, that fulfilment uh, is there, because you can do anything, right? But there has to be a purpose to what you're doing, and uh, this became very clear to us, to us. At that point, uh, we kind of parted ways. I went to McKinsey, uh, Tala and Nokesh moved to UAE and continued to do great things at Kareem sector and uh, basically, but the sort of implicit agreement was always there, right? That the three of us decided that at X point in time in future. One years, of you is going to call. Thing.
0: Yeah, one of yeah, you is going to yeah, pick up yeah. the phone and exactly. say, boys, I have
1: a plan. Let's go to work. Exactly. exactly. So that happened in 2020. So I got exposed to this idea of all italo, And I took five weeks off from McKinsey in January. And at that time, really experimented and learned about this market. The first 50 shops I acquired myself uh, in uh, sort of the Johar, which is one of the area in Karachi. Specifically, so learned a lot, talked to these retailers, and we built this MVP in two weeks, right? So, that app was uh, embarrassingly beautiful. So, (laughs) it was, uh, we didn't have enough time to put pictures on the catalog. So, we went with solid colors on that. And when we gave those apps to the retailer, I was so surprised that they even started ordering on that application. So, I I used to think that even if we give these guys a Google form, they will start ordering. And, that completely changed my mindset, right? Uh, that uh, this was something that was definitely going to work. At that point, I got convinced enough to fly over to UAE and convince the line of case to join. Both of them had seen this similar problem in Saudi and they became super excited that we should do this across the region. And uh, we really believed in that empowerment angle within Pakistan and we had seen how Karim had impacted the entire region. Kind of drew a lot of inspiration from that and uh, decided to go into this and go after the larger sort of opportunity and the chance to change it together and that is how sort of we started unfortunately when i came back in march i got COVID, so oh, man. our start was delayed till june so that's how kind of we launched in
0: june well, I mean, you launched in a pandemic here, and the fact that you've had such thriving success in a pandemic is also amazing, right? I mean, also the the pandemic in a way has accelerated everything around the world, particularly everything as it relates to digital. So I guess the timing in that sense also worked out really well despite the delay because you know shopkeepers had to find new ways to do business and they were open to new technologies. We've been open to new technologies, right? Like a year ago, we wouldn't be zooming like this as much as all of us do right now right and it's changed the way we do business it's amazing Um, and I particularly love the fact around the the impact angle and that's something like I want to get your thoughts on because it's one of those things when you know I've taken Kareem in Pakistan and talked to some of the captains that Kareem has you're absolutely right their lives had changed like there were there were people who would barely make minimum wage jobs now making good money. They had their own vehicle. They were their own bosses. And it was considered respectable to be a captain, right? It changed the definition of what a quote-unquote driver in Pakistan was. And it changed sort of the profession around it, um, which was amazing. And I think similarly in the B2B retail um, space, we've seen for decades, I mean, we've gotten older, um, hearing about documentation, documentation, documentation. I'm like documentation is not gonna happen through a stick. It happens through incentives, it happens through technology, it happens to making the shop owner understand that there's a better way of them doing business. And in that better way of doing business, if you can get them to automatically document without adding a lot of hassle to them, that works. And what retailers doing exactly that, right? It's incentivizing to go digital once you go digital, there's documentation and data flows related to everything. And lo and behold, your economy is now less informal than it should be. Um, but when you when you talk about sort of this early 50s sort of users or customers that you onboarded, what was that like trying to, you know, go to enjoy and, you know, getting to know these people and being like, you know what, here's my app, like order. Trust is a huge factor. You already mentioned it. But what was that experience like in terms of just going and being like, hey. It's
1: extremely bad. So uh, this was my first exposure to the FMCG space. So these retailers have uh, roughly per day 20 people coming to them and pitching them something to sell in their stores. So the retailer's decision making is very fast. The moment you step into the store, the retailer only looks at you and decides in five seconds if you are selling something or buying something. If you're buying something, he loves you, right? He's your, you, you are his course. So I had only in my life experienced that part. The moment I said, I wanted to talk to you, the guy didn't talk to me for the next 15 minutes. So, and I, I had never experienced that, right? Like I was standing in the shop, seeing like hundreds of people walk by me and the guy not just even giving me any attention.
0: So you've gone from uh, mckinsey boardroom mode room <laughs> conversations to standing in the shop being ignored by a shopkeeper exactly
1: so that's a bit shocking honestly and the second thing that happened when i spoke to the guy was uh, I explained to him that we have this app and i'm showing it to him super excited that we can he can order on it this way and he's like but you are gonna get us in trouble with fbi which is the text sort of from pakistan right so the governmental tax body regulation body. So uh, at that point I'm like, oh shit, this is going to be harder than I thought. Right? So and then essentially we started cracking it, right? Like we saw how the other bookers approached them, how many relationships made. And we saw that it's uh easy you had to dress down, so lose the shirts.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, like, did you have to wear a skirt and a jacket, do you dress
1: up or dress down for them? So definitely dress down and they need to relate to you uh, and to trust you. Uh, and uh, essentially, once you had that and you build that trust with them, they understand right. And I think great learning for us came from all of those tier one FMCGs, which really cracked this system quite well. And we learned from the message of the world that essentially, you have to establish your authentic- authenticity with them while ensuring with them that you are on their side and then essentially they start to talk to you they start to uh, make you their suppliers and uh, it's a slow process man. Right so what we've learned is that you can't trust this customer on voting it takes roughly seven to ten orders before a customer stabilizes their cohort with you uh, i think that is a, a key sort of uh, thing to uh, keep hammering uh, with these customers is that you keep making delivery after delivery after delivery them. and that is when they start sort of uh, building their trust with
0: you. Yeah, no, that's that's fascinating. Um, from a growth point of view, I mean, we've seen this in India, for example, where the e-commerce sector, both on the B2B, B2C side has grown rapidly and there's been this backlash from more traditional traders um, who are losing market share because of this digital movement over there. Um, Do you sense that, I mean, maybe it's not there yet, but that is a potential medium term risk that occurs in Pakistan because as you continue to grow and digitize and thrive, obviously the distributor or the retailer or the wholesaler, sorry, um, in the big old markets um, is going to lose market share. So do you sense like the digital movement in Pakistan is probably going to see a backlash in the next three to five years?
1: Oh, uh, it's hard to say, Uzair. So I think uh, one thing that uh, the world has realized that in both Pakistan and India is that this is the future, right? Uh, I think there's no denying that at this point because uh, firstly, that e-commerce penetration is increasing right, uh, significantly within all parts of the world, including Pakistan. And the second is that the retailers themselves want this channel, right? So, it's essentially the customer that's asking for this, not uh, the suppliers. So, uh, they see the convenience, right? Today, if you are a store owner, you don't want to go to the Jodia market every three days, right? Uh, You don't want 20 people coming to your store. You would rather have a POS system or something where you can conveniently order and just sit back and relax essentially. So, that sort of shift towards consumer convenience means that the value proposition of these uh, applications and systems is undeniable. Uh, There's always going to be backlash when there's disruption. So uh, I I think uh, we've seen that across the world. And I don't expect that to be different. Uh, But again, the world is is going through these disruption transitions, right? So I would expect the same. Uh, uh, for so far for now, I think we've experienced actually great vibes from distributors here and they actually support us on the journey as well. Often. And some of the largest ones have, have also partnered with us in our warehousing and also they they are also kind of modernizing with us, right? And they are trying to link their systems with us and set up. they understand that this channel is here to stay and they want to build their capabilities and competence around it.
0: So what are you guys looking at next? I mean, you raised six and a half, $6.7 million in May of this year, 2021, um, obviously growing rapidly, but what's the priority in the next 12, 18 months now that you have a great funding round behind uh, you guys and, and are set for growth? So
1: uh, our ethos is sort of simple, is that right now? We are the fastest scaling player in our region. Having by the uh, virtue of doing two of the largest markets in the region together, these are Saudi and Pakistan. So, you want to continue up that speed and keep uh, essentially uh, expanding into the massive white space out there. And uh, we want to focus uh, a lot on building the most operationally excellent business out there. And uh, secondly, we are going to be expanding now into the lending business. Is uh, because once you are sort of in control of these supply chains, extending credit to these uh, local mom and uh, pop stores is a very natural extension of the business. And if you are grabbing such a wide market share and you have this massive geographical presence, uh, you are able to essentially credit score the market much better due to your deeper understanding of it and uh, at a, at a transactional data level, essentially. And we are able to sort of translate that, score that data and lend to these customers, right? So further expanding our retention, our loyalty towards these customers, and of course, building significant margin on top as well. So this is sort of the natural extension. But at its core, Retello is about empowering these 10 million SMEs, right? And we continue to build a sort of a digital suite of products which empower these customers and help them do their business better and essentially for them to optimize their earnings, right? That is at its core what we believe. Going back to why we started this, right? We want to make sure that these people earn more. With technology and real-time data now both available, there's a massive potential to optimize their working capital, to optimize their supply
0: chains, and really
1: pass on the benefit of technology to these customers, improving their own earnings and returns.
0: So on the lending side is then the goal, similar to your ethos, which is we're good at digital, let's remain true to our core, that you come up with a digital solution on credit scoring and things like that. And on the back end, if there's a financial institution willing to use that to lend, then you're going to partner with them.
1: Precisely, there. So we don't want to become a bank, right? So uh, uh, I just wanted to make
0: sure because FinTech
1: is the other big thing these days. So, you know, so no, of course, we'll be a FinTech, right? But uh, but uh, we don't want to be uh, essentially, let's say, a financial institution today. We want to create that lending marketplace using our credit scoring technology, our KYC. And uh, we know that we, we have that transaction data on these guys, right? We know where the shops are. We know what they're buying. We know what their frequency are they paying. And we can, of course, lend to them as a well. result. But of course, that balance sheet, uh, whoever can finance it, right? Uh, any expense, right? We've talked to multiple large players in both markets who are super excited about the opportunity to be, lend to these customers because of both reasons. Firstly, APRs are pretty high in this segment because yeah. uh, they don't have access to credit with all of their denomination sizes. right? And then secondly, NPLs are extremely low. Uh, and the reason for that is because, again, these shop owners are not going anywhere. right? They've been operating these stores for 20 years. The last thing they want to do is run away from creditors uh, because it ruins their reputation and there's a lot of social credit in there So both of these reasons, uh, we believe this is a great opportunity and at the back end uh, for today, uh, we're definitely partnering with large financial institutions. I'm, I don't know what the future holds. we might become a bank in the future, but not for. now.
0: Yeah, and I would argue that at some point once you get the lending side on on boarded and the credit scoring figured out, um, you, I, I'm sure you're already looking at it, but just in my mind, the thought is we could have your own point of sale system, right? So that the mom and pop buying from you, inventory is managed by you on the back end. That allows you to extend credit. That allows them to not bother about inventory management. And you know, oh, by the way, when the customer comes in, they can register the sale through that. And all of a sudden, that entire cycle from procurement of product by from retailer all the way to the lending to the final purchase by the customer. It's all one seamless digitized experience powered by retailer, which would be amazing in a market like Pakistan. So I'm excited for all of that, given that the amount of empowerment that can create in this in this entire ecosystem is just amazing. So kudos to that. Um, and I hope that you guys thrive and succeed at that. Um, at a more personal level, um, we talked, we touched upon this a bit earlier in the sense that you know, going into these shops and having to dress down and trying to engage with them is a shocking and I would argue humbling experience coming from a McKinsey type situation. But that whole journey of taking the deep plunge, um, saying, you know what, like I've done McKinsey, I've done Kareem now, it's like you've gone from sort of being at Kareem, which was flush with, with cash. So you could spend a lot of money on growth to a McKinsey where clients literally walk through the door to retail where you have to go to the shop owner and try to make the case for why they should even give you 1% of their purchases. Right. What has that experience been like at a personal level? And what are some things that you found yourself doing that, you know, what are, have been important in making sure that you succeed at this role?
1: So I think, uh, I've sort of gone through a very similar transition at Kareem. So it makes it easier. The only thing different at Kareem, like you said, you are flush with cash. So uh, when I took over Kareem uh, as GM for Karachi, uh, we didn't do a lot of trips, but I, I had like a $2 million budget per month.
0: So that makes things right? Yeah. Uh, and 2 million in, Kar- in a Karachi-like market is a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. So you can buy traction
1: uh, and you can, I think with Retailo, you just have to be a lot more creative. Uh, can't spend two million, maybe two hundred k. So, so <laughs> <laughs> it changes the equation a bit. But I think uh, on the flip side, those are uh, uh, being used to a lot of this hard grind, right? Like uh, I think there are sort of fundamental principles. Firstly, uh, it has to be disciplined thought, right? You have to be sure of what you are going after, uh, and like which customers, why, how many, and so on, right? Absolute clarity on how you want to crack the market. Something that Kelly taught us, and I think, which continued, and even I think for the personal level, uh, just having that sort of top-down experience that made kind of you look at the market a lot better. I think secondly, and then the wider part, which kind of got ingrained very really at Kareem was the discipline action, right? Which is you have to ensure that you do it relentlessly. So you're going to have to go to 20 customers, and you're gonna be onboarding two a day, and the 18 rejections you have to face every.
0: Yeah, if a shopkeeper is keeping you waiting for 20 minutes, uh, you got to stay there and like make sure they talk to you. Exactly. So there's
1: no magic around it, right? It's just focus and know that the conversion rates are low and be okay with it uh, initially, right? And then I think it really gives us a lot of heart as well now that every store wants to jump on and use you because they realize the value proposition, uh, which wasn't the case one year ago. And then the third is sort of... uh, you have to ensure a disciplined team, right? Uh, I think the biggest thing is that initial uh, sort of startup stage, it's very important you bring on board the right people. And uh, they essentially do everything, right? Like uh, to me, a lot of my time initially went into recruiting, making sure that we had the right people in place and the right culture. I think this is something we really pride ourselves on, right? That we have some of the most amazing people. And they continue to do amazing things. And honestly, like even now, I feel extremely humbled by uh, the kind of ideas and the accomplishments that they have. And uh, I think uh, that is what gives everybody a lot of energy to feed off on. And uh, this is something again uh, very different from the people you'll find at McKinsey. Maybe Uh, these are not uh, sort of uh, to our most uh, boardroom ready. Team, but uh, let's say that uh, they work maybe before so, they Yeah, Yeah, uh, they can I roll up that, their
0: sleeves and and get get into it.
1: Yes, exactly. So I think that is amazing. And uh, you know, for at a personal level, man, I I think uh, it's been very rewarding. Honestly, like just to see us growing from this small hundred customer serving application, to, you know, more than fifty thousand. It's honestly a very rewarding journey. And seeing how people easily now order on the application. They do all sort of stuff right now. We have customers who put six orders a day. And I asked one of these guys why do
0: you do that? And he's like, uh whenever I realize
1: something is out in the shop, I just place an order. So
0: you're gonna send all of them together the next day that's fine. It's like the Amazon so, <laughs> effect buy now you should have that button too that says just buy now. Yeah. yeah and then exactly. just slide that over. Um, no, that's fascinating. Yeah, it, it is truly like you know the fact that you're hearing these stories of customers reaching that comfort level that says, you know what, if I see something missing, I'm going to order it. Um, that just shows that the market is there. You're only beginning in your long journey. Fifty thousand, I would argue, is a is a huge achievement, but it's only the beginning, and there's a lot, a lot, and long way to go. But you mentioned building a team, and this is something that. You know, I've heard from other startup founders that I've heard two things in sort of over time um, is that one startup founders say it's still hard to get really good talent in Pakistan. Um, the competition is tough. It's not a huge crowd of people that you can pull from that are truly hustlers and can get stuff done in a startup environment. But then I also hear from younger people who message on LinkedIn or on Twitter, etc. They're like, you now we're trying to get into the startup ecosystem. Maybe are not fully skilled. Maybe not fully understand how to succeed in this area. But they they have a they have a hunger to learn. So from your experience, given you've been at Kareem McKinsey, now doing your own thing, building your own team, what are some keys to success for somebody who's let's say like your younger self coming out of lums, right? What would you tell that person who's like you know what I want to go work for Bajaj and be a retailer and you know? kick ass and be retailer's youngest regional manager, let's say. So I think, how uh, how do we get
1: there? I still still am surprised how I got hired. (laughs) So, so, uh, but uh, I think great question is there. So so startups are tricky places. right? I think firstly, uh, it's important to understand what startups need. Right? Startups want the move. You want people who are fully skilled uh, so you don't have to put any effort in training them. And you want extremely driven people. And thirdly, you don't want to pay them a lot, right? So it's like you want to pay them on
0: inequity that might grow five years from now.
1: So that's like a magic trifecta, right? So I think firstly you must understand when you are hiring startups that uh it's impossible to get a combination of three. So it's like, what do you wanna give up on? uh, is always the question. And personally, I think uh so three, start are resource contract. So you're never, never going to be paying out those McKinsey salaries. Uh, you'll be having a cash plus equity component. And even that, cumulatively, will be less than a lot of the tier one places, even within the country. So uh, you want people, and that is sort of an important criterion, because you want people who are doing it, because they want to be in a startup. They want to learn, and the they want to kind of feel that energy. So I think it aligns the purpose of so first criterion for us is to ensure that if you are coming to a startup, you are not coming for the paycheck, right? Yeah. because then you are essentially going to be unhappy, if not immediately yeah. then in six months, right? So uh, that is first. Second, is in terms of skills, I think you are super happy to compromise on pre-learned skills if there is drive plus ability to learn. Uh, I think just drive doesn't cut it, just ability to learn doesn't cut it. Uh and you kind of need at least both or skills. So if you don't have that high ability to learn, you want to have drive plus some pre-existing skills, right? Uh so I think that sort of combination is very crucial. So I think uh for all the folks, sort of early spawn, for myself as well. I think uh, firstly uh, would say that go in into any role, right? The role doesn't matter at the startup, right? Like You wrote you today, you think you want to do a marketing role? Like, startups don't want marketing, (laughs) they want sales, right? They want uh, operations. So, uh, it doesn't make sense for a young startup to be. uh, It's going to have like maybe 5% of its people in marketing or 2% of its people in marketing. And that's not where the action is going to be. So, I would always recommend to join a startup where there is the core focus, right? it's very important that you understand what the startup is about and you go and try and work uh, for that function. And imagine if you can't work for that function and you were in some other function, you would definitely be linked to that function, right? So learn about it, understand what matters to it, and do that. And eventually you'll go. So, myself, my personal journey, uh, I joined uh, KMU, my first startup, which is Rocket Internet, as a social media manager. Uh, And I maybe did social media management 10% of the time, right? So got to do so much different stuff like PI, logistics, uh, uh, digital acquisition. So the full, and you have this amazing sort of opportunity in startups that nobody's going to stop you from doing something and adding value. So I think that is great in terms of the extremely. So if you don't have a lot of pedigree and you're applying to a startup, then I think the best way is to, Write them a thoughtful email, right? Explain to them how how you experience their product, how you think you can add value, of how much you want to learn, or how much you understand. Offer to do a free internship, whatever. So, uh, the last thing a startup wants is to have people who are high maintenance, right? Like, there's not enough time, honestly. And uh, you want people who are aligned with the vision and the values. And uh, who have one of the two things which I was saying about right? this is like sort of the drive, uh, skills and uh, ability to learn. So
0: you want at least sort of a combination, somewhere which makes sense. Right? Yeah. And I think like the, the email part is so, uh, so important. Like last week I was talking to Aiba Shahid, who's a journalist at Profit pk and we were talking about cold emails, right? And how many people feel uncomfortable doing that. And I'm like... If you're applying for a job or interested in a sector, odds are you can go on Twitter or LinkedIn and find that person and send them a message. Don't make it super long. As you said, make it thoughtful, make it relevant to what they're focused on. And oh, by the way, if you don't hear back from them, write to them again, following up a week or 10 days later. And odds are they will respond the second or third time. If after three times they don't respond, that's fine. Like, okay, you tried, but at least make that effort.
1: Exactly, and then it's a conversion rate problem, right? So uh, whether it you are raising VC funds, you write two hundred funds, ten are reply, five take your pitch, and all you need is one. Right? Yeah, to invest. In fact, not even yeah. one, right? So and uh, it's the same story. Honestly, we I have hired uh, at least forty people at Retailo who cold reached out to me. So yeah. uh, and some of them have been the most incredible and amazing people, right? Uh, four of them are now in the US who interned with us or worked with us are now places like Facebook and Amazon. And uh there's been people who uh, there's been this incredible intern we had. His name was Kesar, and he he was at Dartmouth. And he he just wanted to do an internship for three months, right? He just cold reached out to me on LinkedIn. We got him in a party, did amazing stuff. Now he's going to Facebook and we're all proud.
0: Amazing. Yeah.
1: And uh, I think it's just like I feel like why do not more people reach out, right? Like and sometimes also I'll be very blunt with you. The messages are incredibly bad and you don't entertain them. People like yes. please give us a job. Of course, that's not gonna get you the job. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so that's so the last
0: that that's not gonna have a conversion rate of zero percent. That exactly, message exactly.
1: Exactly. So I think uh, of other thing and I feel for the uh, ecosystem and generally people as well is that Nobody teaches these things, right? Like how to write a good message. And I keep telling everybody, Google is your friend, right? Like learn how to do good cold reach out emails. It's not easy. Uh, And uh, you have to think a lot, you have to spend time. Cold reach out email, a good cold reach out email is going to take you a couple of hours to write, not like a couple of minutes. So uh, (laughs) that is sort of invest the time. I think that is important, right?
0: And that's probably going to be your first and only impression that you're going to make on that person. Right. And you're absolutely right. Google is your email. Like that's what I tell a lot of younger people. I'm like, you may not know about a subject. Take photography. You don't know anything about it. But guess what? If you want to learn about it and spend a day, you can learn about 30 percent what an expert knows by a day's worth of research. Do that. Right. Coursera is your friend. You, you think you're going into, you want to go work at retailer because you want to work in the credit history side and on the lending side of the business. Maybe there's, you know, go Google what, what programming languages are used to automate credit history making, right? Learn a bit about it, right? Buzz and email. That at least shows that you spent some time before you said, give me a job um, or I want a job or an internship with you, right? And I think that's so critical and people don't do that. Everything is on your fingers fingertips now, and people should make take advantage of it. Even writing properly, you can do grammar checks online and make sure that what you're writing is in, is in good grammar. Um, um, so okay. well, this has been an excellent conversation. And, and before I let you go, um, what are, I always ask my guests, so what are two or three books um, that you've read recently or over the years that have like sort of left an impression on you that you would recommend people pick up and read?
1: Wow, so I think tough question, uh, but I think two that really I love uh, at a personal level, and uh, basically one of them is called uh, good to great. So I think uh, that is something which really left sort of a lasting impression on me, and I love sort of understanding the difference. I think, and you understand that the last. Uh, lever of outperformance, the hardest to get and the most important to get and the smallest also. which is painful. So, uh, last 2%, right? How do you get it?
0: And why is it important?
1: So, I think that and uh, second is uh, thinking fast and slow. Uh, Excellent. And so, so, again, uh, I am personally try to keep reminding myself a lot about that. I'm a very opinionated person, always think I'm right. Uh, probably never, right? So, <laughs> so I think uh, that is very important to kind of step back and really think about that. Yeah. and these are these are sort of the, the self help books, right? Like, I'm still book number one, still for me, like, still the seven year old me Harry Potter,
0: so always yeah. Like,
1: Yes,
0: that was always important. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was uh, Lord of the Rings more than Harry Potter. Um, but I, <laughs> Harry Potter was excellent as well. But I think thinking fast and slow is such a great recommendation because I remember reading it, I think, like a few years ago now, um, and still going back and referencing it at times to remind myself that we live in such a fast paced world that we've sort of been geared towards, particularly our generation, right? The digitally native generation we've been geared towards immediate answers to everything. And we don't recognize that our brain is wired differently. Sometimes it's best to go on a hike or a walk or do something like Coke or whatever that gets your mind off of a problem and let your brain do the slow work of sort of slow analysis and then things will come to you in a much better way. But um, we don't realize that because we've grown up in an era where everything is 140 characters long and (laughs) instant streaming is the name of the game, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. So well, this
0: has been a great conversation. Again, thank you so much for taking out the time. Wish you and your team all the best. Um, you're doing amazing work. And hopefully next time I'm in Pakistan, I would love to catch up in person. Um, but in the meantime, best of luck with everything. No, oh, definitely.
1: Thank you so much for
0: having me here. Lovely. Talk. Take care.